It is a privilege to come again tonight to worship. It's always good to be with you. And it's just been, for me, a tremendous day. Anne and I have really enjoyed being with Andrew and Catherine uh, and Catherine's parents. It's just been a, a wonderful time. And I couldn't help when Andrew introduced me. And I appreciate him not saying so many things that he could have said about his father that are all true. But I couldn't help but think how many families who are not at Mount Juliet are, who are very concerned about this church, because just as I'm very concerned about what is happening here and glad to hear the great news, I know that the Shannons and the Barnes and the Wagners are just as concerned about what is taking place here. And every family here has individuals who don't live in this area that are just as appreciative of this good church family at Mount Julian. I'm glad you're, you're here and a part of it. I hope you brought your Bibles tonight. This morning, I tried to focus on families in a general perspective. Tonight, I don't want to talk about families. I want to talk about you and me. I want to talk about our faith. I want to think from the perspective of the Bible, what is it we're trying to do? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? How can I find God in a confused world? I think that's a very appropriate topic because we do live in a confused world. And if you're not careful, you'll come up with thoughts about God that if you try to go to the Bible, you couldn't find it. And unfortunately, there are many people who aren't teaching the Bible, and we can be misled if we don't know the story. Not everyone sees things from our perspective. And when I say our perspective, I'm thinking about the church. We don't look at God from that perspective. Sometimes I need a wake-up call to see that people don't see things the way I see them. They just seem so plain to me. Why can't they see the world the way I see it? A couple of years ago, I was driving from Henderson to Memphis after teaching a class. And if you drive that route, it's about 75 miles. You have to go through small towns, and they're proud of those small towns. They want you to see their small towns, so they have a speed limit that lets you respect what they have to offer. And I was driving along. I was doing okay that afternoon. It seemed like I was, my mind was somewhere else. I looked up in the mirror, and in the rear view mirror, I saw those blue lights flashing. I thought, oh, no. Here I am in the city of Oakland. What am I going to do? And I pulled over to the side, and the policeman came out. He said, I need to see your driver's license. And I said, what was I doing, officer? And he said, you were speeding. You were doing 55 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. And I was sitting right under a speed limit sign that said, speed limit, 55. And I said, the speed limit's 55. He said, not back there. It's 45. Let me see your license. And I was in, inwardly, I was just groaning. Said, oh, I don't need another bill to pay. I don't need this. I don't want it. And then he asked that question, what do you do for a living? Oh, then I had to say, as if to add insult to injury, I'm a, I'm a preacher. Now, a, now the preacher's story is going to start. So he took my license, went back, and I was groaning to myself as I was waiting. He checked on the computer, I'm sure, to see if I was wanted anywhere. He came back and he said to me, well, do you think that if, you, if I were to let you go, you could say a prayer for me? And boy, I thought, let's pray right now. Let's have a prayer. And I thought, this is great. And I said, yes, sir, I think I could. And he said, you have a great day and pray for me. And I was so thankful I went. I just made my day. I kept driving back and forth, and one day I decided instead of going through Oakland, I was going to take another route through LaGrange. LaGrange has this nice mansion, and I was riding through enjoying that mansion, and sure enough, I looked in my rearview mirror, and there's some blue lights flashing. 
And I just thought, oh, no, the same thing. I don't need this. And I pulled over to the side. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't, can't believe that. He came up and said, may I see your driver's license? You know, you were doing 55 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. And I didn't even complain. I gave him the license. He said, what do you do for a living? Well, it just hit me. I thought, maybe, maybe. I said, I'm, I'm a preacher. Well, he took my license and went back, did the same thing. When this different policeman came back up to the car, he's writing out his ticket. I thought maybe he didn't hear me. So I said, well, yeah, I just preach right up the road here at the Germantown Church of Christ. That's where I, that's where I preach. Kind of threw that out, you know, twice. And he kept writing, finally ripped it off. He said, yeah, well, I'm a Baptist. Here you go. And he, <laughs> Handed me the ticket. I thought, isn't that great? You see, everyone doesn't see it from our perspective. And I don't know. You know, I don't know what the man's background is. But I've noticed that when you start talking about God, you start talking about, if you're not careful, you'll start looking for groups. Who do you identify with? Who do you preach for? Who do you preach for? And I love that question. I'm a preacher. Yeah, well, who do you preach for? What denomination? I'm just a New Testament preacher. That's all I do. And I understand where they're going, but I understand where I'm going. So I want to just say, I am just a New Testament Christian, and I just believe in the Bible. Don't you? If we go by the Bible, and we do what the Bible says, everything will be all right, won't it? And that would be fine. If we really saw it from that perspective, let me ask you. If someone were to ask you about your faith in God, where would it come from? Could you say it comes from the Bible? Or would you say, well, it's, it's what my parents taught me, what my grandparents taught me. I've talked with many people about religious topics, and when it gets to that point, they know what they need to do in order to be saved. When they realize, wait a minute, what you're asking me to do is something that's different from what my father says or what my grandfather... Now we have a huge hurdle. What are we going to do? And my question to us is, would we do what we actually demand of other people is to throw out everything that we've ever thought and let the Bible be our guide? Where is it that we find out about God? That's my question. How would you find out about God in a confused world? Well, you go to school and you pull out a history book and you start looking at the beginning of time. Where did man come from? Interestingly enough, this is what you'll read. If you were to go to that multi-volume set of Will Durant and you start reading about the origin of man, it will begin by saying it all begins by what archaeologists have discovered. So we dug something up and we started dating it by carbon dating and other means, we start trying to determine these are the remnants of what people have lived with years ago. And we can understand, according to the historians, that the first civilization came with the Sumerians, Sumer. And you start reading that. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Never heard that in Bible class, but, but that's interesting. So you start dating that back and they start saying, now the earth is billions and billions of years old. And then somewhere along the way, billions and billions, there was a man that crawled up out of the water. And that man started walking, or the fish or whatever evolved into a man. And we start saying, now wait a minute, where did you find that? Where did that come from? And people tell me, well, the world is billions of years old. I don't have a problem with that. Saying that all the archaeologists have found say that the world is a billion years old. Let me ask you, how long did it take to create the earth? Well, the Bible tells us six days. On the seventh day, God rested. On that seventh day, how old was the earth? Well, you start thinking back, or I really don't know. Let me ask you this question. 
How long did it take God to create man? Well, the Bible says on the sixth day, man, God created animals and man. It took him one day. How old was Adam? If you were to look at him, he would look as if he were an adult. You could guess 20 or 30 years of age. I don't know how old you would say Adam was, but he was an adult. He wasn't a baby that was reared and tried to grow on his own, was he? He was created as an individual who was able to function. He was an adult. So let's just say he looked to be 30 or 40 years old. How old was Adam on the seventh day? He was one day old. But he looks just like a 30-year-old. Doesn't matter. He's one day old. On that seventh day, how old was the earth? It was one week old. But it looks like it's billions of years old. God can do whatever he wants to do. If God can create an adult man in one day, he can create an earth for billions of years in one week. But if you get back and look at the Bible, how old was it really? And then I start questioning everything. How did you know all that? Where did that come from in the Bible? So I go back to the Bible, and this is where I'd like you to begin. In Genesis chapter 2, let's just follow the biblical account and see what God has planned for us. Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. The Bible says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now I go back and I say, isn't that interesting? God put man, and then later he would talk about creating woman, in this garden of Eden, a beautiful garden. There were no thorns and thistles, that came later, but there was a beautiful garden, and all man had to do was to keep it. There was a responsibility that he had. He had a responsibility, and there was something he wasn't supposed to do, or he would pay the price, which means there was accountability. He was responsible. He was accountable. Now, why couldn't man live with that? Why couldn't man be happy with that? Would you be happy living in the Garden of Eden? Oh, if we could see it, I think we would. Beautiful place. That's how the Bible describes it. But somehow, deep within man, there was something that wasn't being met. The Bible describes it as something that's born into humans. There's a longing for something more than we have. Why are we living in a confused world? Because people are still struggling with something deep inside that wants a little more. I just want a little more. I'm not satisfied with that. And so in Genesis chapter 3, a serpent appears. Verse 1, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. God didn't say, Don't touch it. She added that. But the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows in the day you will eat it uh, from, that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will be like God. If you have your Bible, you ought to underline that. You will be like God. And there was that temptation. The Bible tells us that there are four realities. And Genesis 3 lays it out for us pretty plainly. There will be temptation. There will be sin. There will be redemption. At some, there will be punishment. And then there will be redemption. If I give in to temptation, I am going to pay the price. And that's what the text is telling us. Something within me says, I'm not satisfied with what I, want, I have. I want a little more. 
I think that's why people are in very happy marriages and suddenly they want something more and it breaks up a perfect marriage. Satan is tempting us. You're going to be tempted. Even if you're a faithful Christian, I've often wondered, can you ever outgrow temptation? Does it ever outgrow? We have a a brother at Germantown who is well in his 90s now. He tells me, let me tell you, his, we had a funeral for his wife a couple of years ago, but he said, you never really do outgrow temptation, even the lust of the flesh, in his 90s. And I'm thinking, at some point, can't you outgrow that? God has made us this way. He has made us sexual beings, but he has given us the parameters in which that is to be expressed. But Satan is working on us and he's tempting us. And what he is saying is you are going to be tempted. And here's what temptation always carries with it. It's the promise of something good, enjoyable, and it's the promise that you won't have to pay the consequences. That's temptation. I'll give you something good and there'll be no consequences. And that's what Satan is trying to say. You surely shall not die. And Eve gave in. Then Adam gave in. Now we have a problem. Man and woman disobeyed. Go on to, if you would, to chapter 4, verse 26. And let's just read of the descendants of Adam and Eve. Verse 26 says, To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was Cain, there was Abel, and then there was Seth. And the text says, Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is that group of men that were going to worship God. Cain and Abel were worshiping God with their sacrifices. But here is a group that will, this lineage will start praying to God. And we think that's important because we start reading of the descendants of Seth in chapter 5. If you read down through chapter 5, I won't read all of this. And you might think that it's boring reading a genealogy. It's not. It's our history. These are our relatives we're reading about. Seth gave, verse 6 says, Seth became the father of Enosh. Verse 12, Enosh became the father of Kenan. Verse 16, there's Mahalalel. Verse 18, there's Jared. Verse 22, there's Enoch. Verse 26, there's Methuselah. In verse 28, here is Lamech. In verse 29, Noah. Now we've moved from Seth to Noah, and we're coming down generations. And you would say, well, Seth's generations are going to call on the name of the Lord. And you start following this down, and you start asking, how many generations does it take for a group of people to leave God? And the Bible clearly calls back and says, not that many. Because do you remember what Noah was doing when he was created? He was preaching, and no one would follow him. I think it's interesting when you read through. I suppose I read this all my life and I never saw this. You start doing the math and you look at how long Methuselah is described at living and just go through some time on your own and just do the math. If the figures add up correctly, and I think they do, Methuselah dies of the year of the flood. Now, if that's the case, he either died before the flood or he died in the flood. If he died in the flood, it shows that Methuselah was not a faithful servant of God or he would have joined Noah in his work. And I'm thinking, Noah, what would you think? Your father died five years ago. Your grandfather is dying and he might even be. What are you going to do if your father, your grandfather is not faithful to God? What are you going to do? How long does it take to come back to the truth? You see, here's how I find God in a confused world. I quit listening to the world, even if they're my family, 
If what they're saying is different from what the Word of God says, that's a test of faith. That is a great test of faith. So Genesis chapter 5 tells us that man keeps moving away from God, and he does. So much so that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you have the men beginning to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves from whomever they chose. I don't think he was talking about when he says sons of God, he's not talking about angels, because we learn later that angels are sexless beings. They don't procreate, they're created beings. Who were the sons of God? The descendants of Seth. They started choosing out wives and they were using the very worst parameters for choosing a wife. They saw beautiful women and that's the one they went for. Man is always looking at the outside. God is telling us, look at the inside. Choose someone who is good on the inside. And what happened, these people kept falling away from God so that God determined that he was going to clear out the face of the earth and start again. So he does. Genesis chapter 10 is interesting. Here is all of the genealogy. If you want to know the origin of man, here it is. And notice this. You have the sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Just want to point out something that's interesting to me anyway. In verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtica. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba, and Dedan. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod was the great monarch of time. If you want to know someone that ruled all the earth, you don't have to go past Genesis chapter 10. Here's Nimrod. He ruled it all. How did he do that? By what he was able to do. He was a mighty warrior. Men have always been attracted to people who were physically capable And they were following Nimrod. That's where the world goes. And then if you notice, verse 10 says, At the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And that word Shinar is the same as Sumer. If you read history, archaeologists say it began with the Sumerians. The Bible is saying this is it. The most prolific group of people came from Sumer. God was instrumental in this. God is describing what is taking place. Men are beginning to disperse, and the men, instead of coming to God, when they're left on their own, they're going to move away from God. And you say, why are you talking about all this? Because I want you to see that the Bible has already shown us that men will progressively move away from God if we don't follow what God is saying. So chapter 10 ends with that idea of the sons of Shem in verse 22. Even describes in chapter 11 the dispersion of the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, we see Abraham receiving this call. And Abram receives this call from God in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. May I ask you a question, a real personal question? If you were to receive a message from God that you knew was from God, then it said you need to follow me according to the will of God and leave your family, leave all of your relatives, would you do it? Well, my my family has so many other gods. Do you know Joshua chapter 24 tells us that in the days of Abraham they had other gods too. 
The world has always had other gods. I'm not talking about material gods. I'm talking about gods they worshipped. Pagan gods they bowed down to. And they were bowing down to them at that time. People are still bowing down to these pagan gods. Would you do it? And that's why I want to know about my faith. Is my faith right? Abram was blessed because he chose to follow the God as opposed to all the other gods. He said, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. That's the great challenge for 2006. Will we do it? We know what God wants us to do by reading the Bible. Will we do it? Well, he didn't know everything there was to know about God, but he followed him. Didn't know where he was going, but he went. Didn't know how God was going to bless him, but he went. He made mistakes. He went too far, went to the south country, had to come back. Went to a place he shouldn't have gone. Lied about his own wife, or at least told a half lie. Everyone knew it was a lie. But he made mistakes, but he came back. And Abraham was the seed, was the one through whom that seed would come. So we understand all of that. Then you read all the way through the book of Genesis. Genesis, the first part of it, deals with four great events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the family of man. The latter, heart path, or the latter half of the book of Genesis deals with four great men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And you get to the end of the book of Genesis and you read that Joseph dies. There arises a king that doesn't know anything about Joseph. They forgot about him. That great leader. Did you know that it won't be long. People will forget about you. People will forget about me. How long does our heritage last, really? How many generations can you go back where you can recall every relative that you've had? Do you know what your great-great-great-grandfather really was like? I don't. I couldn't tell you what my great-great-grandfather was, was like. I know he lived in Mississippi. I know he was working with the Postal Service. I know he's a postmaster. That's all I know about him. The only thing that helps me is that he was literate. Somehow that seems to be good. He could read in order to deliver the mail and make sure it was dispersed. So I guess that's a blessing. But how many generations will you be known? People may not know what, who you were, but they'll remember the legacy that you're leaving. In Exodus chapter 3, God has a call for Moses and he speaks from a burning bush. In verse 4, the Lord saw that he turned aside to look and God called to him from the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, don't come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. You remember that story. Moses is now 80 years of age. And I think that's important because when he was 40, he was wanting to serve God, but he saw that it wasn't going to work out that way because the people wouldn't follow him. And now that he is 80, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to lead for God, but God is ready for him to lead. And God says, I want you to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, my people out of Egyptian bondage. Listen to what he says, verse 10. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And listen to the question that Moses asks. Now they may say to me, what is his name? 
What shall I say to them? Isn't that interesting? Moses is saying, who is this? Who am I going to say sent me? I don't even know your name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. To me, that doesn't sound like a great, a great answer. You just tell them the I am sent you. The God of the universe sent you. The one that's always been and always will be. He is the one that sent you. And it's almost as if God is saying, if they don't listen to the God of the universe, then they don't need to follow you and they don't need to be saved. But he knew they would. And so Moses argues a little more. And finally, he does lead for God. So Moses, even though he didn't understand everything, he was obedient to that which he understood. To me, that's an important question. In Exodus chapter 20, he comes down from the mountain and he has these Ten Commandments. Interestingly, the first two commandments have to do with other gods. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. He begins by addressing polytheism, the worship of many gods, and idolatry. God is still dealing with who you're following. You see, when we're talking about Christianity, we're so worried about the peripherals. We're so worried about rules that we keep and we've made. And we're, we're so unaware of what God is dealing with. If you deal with the basic foundational principle, who are you serving? All the other issues will fall right into line. What am I going to do on Sunday morning? Well, let me see. I've got to make a choice on Sunday morning. No, the real question is, are you following God? When I make that decision, a lot of those other peripheral issues just seem to solve themselves by themselves. How am I going to deal with my children? Well, do I want them to serve God or do I want them to serve the gods of this world? That helps me make that decision. And so God was dealing with the people. In Acts chapter 17, let's come to the New Testament and then I'll quickly draw this to a close. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. And he's dealing with people who of all things... Now we're in the first century after the birth of the life of Christ. And we're dealing with people who are still struggling with gods. Paul walks through the city and he sees all these statues, these altars. They're given to various gods. It was a pagan place. And as he walked around, he even saw that they had one statue that was to an unknown God. And Paul focused on that one. Here were some Epicureans, here were some Stoics, different philosophers. All the philosophers wanted to hear what Paul had to say. So Paul begins by preaching, and this is what he says in verse 22. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. You know, that word to me is very important. If you were to ask people today, are you very religious? They would say yes. Yes, I'm religious. How are you religious? Oh, I go to church all the time. I have a friend who is now in his 70s. His name is Jacob. Jacob is an interesting man. He's Jewish, never been married. 
He came to a Bible study that I was having, of all places, at a, at a car dealership. One of our members was the general manager of the dealership, so I asked him if we couldn't have a Bible study. He said, I'll tell you what, we'll just have the Bible study every day at lunch. I'll buy the pizza and we'll invite everyone that wants to come in and we'll just have a Bible study. So we did. We just circled around the table and Jacob was there. And Jacob was a Jew studying the New Testament. We went through the book of John and every time we'd come to a place where the Jews would ask, we'd say, uh, someone would turn to Jacob and say, Jacob, that's what they say about the Jews. Is that what the Jews believe? And he would say, that's what the Jews believe. And he would tell us all the way through. You ask Jacob, are you very religious? I'm not very religious, but I'm a Jew. I'm a religious person. I'm just a Jew. Someone asked him, Jacob, do you, do you believe in Jesus Christ to be the son of God? And Jacob said, I don't believe God had any children. No, I don't believe in Jesus. Now, that's an alarming statement. I don't believe I've ever heard anyone say that before. I've heard people say, I believe in Jesus. I'm not really a Christian. But to have someone say, no, I don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. That's that's a very bold statement. And before I became very critical of of Jacob and what he was saying, I started thinking about this. You know, isn't it interesting if you were to stand before God on the final day of judgment and he were to say, David, do you believe in Jesus the Christ? And I were to say, I don't believe that God had any sons. That'd be a bold statement, wouldn't it? Which would be worse? David, do you believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God? And I would say, and I would have to say, I believed in him, but I really didn't take him seriously. And I didn't do anything he said. I decided I had a better plan. So I worshiped other gods. Which would be worse? And I would say neither would be worse. I don't know of one that's worse. Denial? Or disobedience. So now we have a real issue here. And you wonder, where do people get what they believe? We believe that. We really say we believe it. But do we really believe it? And Paul is saying, I observe you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And what therefore you worship in ignorance... This is the one I'm going to proclaim to you. And he started talking about Jesus. He started talking about him as creator. Isn't that an odd place to start? He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He keeps you going. And finally, Paul would say, he is our judge. One day we'll all stand before Jesus the Christ. And so it becomes a very important question now. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Well, verse 26. He made from everyone, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's not far. People are searching, but they don't know where to search. Do you know where they ought to be finding God? They ought to be finding God with us. We ought to be pointing the way. The church is the one given that responsibility. God has chosen that he's not going to use angels anymore. He is not sending an angel down to tell you what to do. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, He is not going to give me a vision. He is not going to give me a dream in the middle of the night anymore because he has chosen to use Jesus Christ. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are the recipients of this knowledge. I'm the one that's supposed to be doing that. You're the one that's supposed to be doing that. Wherever you are, in your sphere of influence, people are looking and they don't know about God. They don't know because we haven't told them. And there's something that's pressing about that, some urgency 
that's impressed upon me that I have the responsibility to tell them. And while I'm so busy taking care of me and my family, God has a much larger responsibility for me, and that is to spread the borders of his kingdom and bring people into his family. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 10. This is the last passage I'd like you to turn to. Romans chapter 10 and 11. If you'll notice, Paul is writing to Christians. I know he's writing to Christians because in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he calls them saints, holy ones, those who have already been baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6, he describes that. If you pick up the book of Romans and you say, well, I'll tell you, there's something about God that you should know. And you say, I'm not a Christian. And you go from the book of Romans, you've picked up someone else's mail. It would be like picking up a letter along the, the street that says you have inherited one million dollars. Please come to this address and pick it up. And you get real excited about it. I want the money. Then you pick it up and you really look at it and you see that it's addressed to your next door neighbor. It's not addressed to you. You can't get the money. That letter wasn't addressed to you. The book of Romans was written to Christians. So someone quotes from Romans and says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, are you a Christian? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you are, that applies to you. But he's not talking to non-Christians. So in Romans chapter 10, look at verse 11. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I need to have faith. How do I, how do I develop that faith? I listen and I look for God's instruction. I listen and I look. It wasn't that long ago I went with a group from Mount Juliet to the Ukraine. We had a great time. They were working in one part of the area and we were working in another. But I had a lunch with a man who was a builder, a young man, who was, in my opinion, the first true, true atheist that I have ever seen. That is, I know there are some people who claim to be atheists. I think they know about God. They just don't want to do it. But I think this man truly did not believe in God and saw no reason for believing in God. We had lunch and I was working through a translator and as we were talking about it, I, we started talking about God and he could not believe that God created the world. We talked for about an hour. Finally, he said, okay, okay, you've convinced me, but now let me ask you, I seem to be happy. I have a family and I have everything going. I work hard. I treat everyone nice. Why do I need God? That's a good question. Why do I need God? Well, you could give them the answer. Well, if you don't have God, you won't go to heaven. I understand that. But you're missing the whole point. That's what we were created for. We were created to serve God. That was the whole point of our being here. Ephesians chapter 1 says it repeatedly three times. We live to the praise of his glory. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks so that we may show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We need God here, now. Our families need God, but I need God. I have troubles, and you need God. You have troubles. 
When we pray, we're praying to an omnipotent, all-powerful God who sees all, knows all, and is everywhere. And when we call to him, we call to him as our Father. And he hears us and he answers our prayer. Do you know how I know that? Because the Bible tells me. That's why faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I get stronger in my faith when I read and hear His Word. So you might think, well, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. Well, you missed the whole point. You could not only learn something, but you could be sharing with someone. Someone's coming into this assembly, and they're hurting, they're struggling. I heard this morning, as it meant a prayer, we were praying for those who lost their jobs. We could say, we're praying for those who have lost their health. We're praying for those who are facing difficulty in their work. We're praying for families who are struggling. And many of those struggles may never be voiced in this assembly, but they're here. People are coming here looking for help, and they're looking for God, and they should find it. So we listen to God for his instruction. That's what the church is all about. Then go over to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul continues. He said, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He's talking about the Jews. May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you know, do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? And he quotes from 1 Kings 19. Lord, they've killed thy prophets. They've torn down thine altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I think I find God by stop comparing my, stopping comparing myself to other people. And we do that in the church a lot. We come down and we look across at someone else and we start, com- I just wish I had his faith. Or I wish I had his gifts. If God would bless me the way he's blessed him, I would surely be faithful. We start comparing ourselves to them. Elijah prayed, I guess I'm the only faithful one. And the answer that God gave is you don't understand. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed down to other gods. So they're still serving me. And that's the message I hear. Paul said we will not com- be like those who uh, compare themselves by themselves or commend themselves by themselves. But... We will actually compare ourselves to the measure of the rule. And he writes to the church at Corinth and says, that's what we're comparing ourselves to. So when I ask you about your faith, how does it measure up to God? And then the last part in chapter 11, verse 33. I like how he leaves this. He said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He's talking about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Another translation says the designs and the means of God. Oh, how beautiful it is. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I think we need to recognize our mortal limitations. And that's what Paul is saying. Recognize our mortal limitation, limitations. You will never really fully know who God is. But we are still searching for him. We're still looking for him. I suppose this illustration has meant a lot to me in, in my life because it, 
it focuses what I think we're trying to do as Christians. It's a mythical story. It's a fable. But it's a story of three people that died and went to heaven. They were dying and they were going as they went to that proverbial gate. And there was the gatekeeper standing in front of the gates, the pearly gates to let people in. The gatekeeper asked these three people individually two important questions. The three people were a preacher, a missionary, and an old lady. And he asked them the question, what is it that you've done that you think allows you to come into heaven? The preacher stood and he said, don't you know, I've been preaching so many years. I've given my life to preaching. My wife and I have dedicated ourselves to preaching. No telling how many sermons I have given and how many people have responded in the gospel meetings. If you knew about the church, you would know me because that's what I've done. And the next question is, do you know the Lord? And the preacher said, absolutely, I know the Lord. How in the world could I have worked unless the Lord was blessing me? Because the Lord was behind everything that I was doing. These congregations supported me, but I was preaching. And he asked him to step aside. He called the missionary. Missionary stepped forward. And he said, what is it that you've done? That allows you to go to heaven. And the missionary said, I've given my life to work in third world countries. I've gone where people didn't want to go. The church was established in places it never would have been had I not gone. I have humbly worked and I have served, but I've gone to these places. And because of the work that I've done, the church is now flourishing. And he said, do you know the Lord? And the missionary says, oh, I have a personal relationship with the Lord. I pray to him every morning, every afternoon, every day. I pray with him all the time, and he's blessed my work. I couldn't have done it without the blessings of the Lord because I prayed to him, have an intimate relationship with him. And then he asked him to step aside, and the old woman stepped forward. And the gatekeeper said, what is it that you have done that should allow you to go to heaven? And she bowed her head. She said, I haven't done anything noteworthy. The only thing that I've done is get involved with God's people, the church. I've tried to help when I could. When I couldn't help physically, I tried to pray. I prayed for people that that were hurting. I tried to help any way that I could. And the gatekeeper said, do you know the Lord? When he said that, she looked up at him and she smiled. And she said, oh, Lord. I knew you and recognized you the moment I saw you. And I know that's a mythical story, but I think it's a beautiful story because I think we can get so involved in church work, family work, that we forget about the Lord. I'm not talking about your family. I'm talking about you. How is your relationship with the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you know what he wants you to do? If you know what he wants you to do, why aren't you doing it? Men and women of old who have been faithful have turned their life over to the Lord, and they've just decided, whatever the Bible says, that's what I'll do. Tonight, if you're not in the kingdom, the challenge is yours. If you haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins, don't wait any longer. That's the only way to make contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to encourage you to do what is right. If you are a baptized believer and you've let the problems of life turn you away from the Lord... The call is to come back to Jesus Christ tonight. Maybe we could pray for you. Maybe we could pray with you. Maybe we could be made aware of some issue that you're dealing with so that we could be constantly remembering you in prayer. We have an invitation song that we're going to sing, and we're singing for you.